Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast journey beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. Welcome to Anthology. Hello, and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction, anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to this week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at anthologypod.com, and if you want to contact me, you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send me an email at matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or call and leave a voicemail at 317-762-6099. Today I'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 12 of The Twilight Zone, titled What You Need, which aired Christmas Day, 1959. I'll also have a bonus review of Tales of Tomorrow's What You Need episode, which aired several years earlier on February 8th, 1952, and was based on the same source material. But first, I want to go over some listener email. Of course, you can always email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com for a chance to have your email read on the show. And since I want to stay on top of recording the podcast, I'm actually recording this episode the day that I released last week's episode. So I only have one email to read (laughs) since the episode's been out for 23 hours at this point. I'm actually thinking that maybe down the road... I might have like an occasional standalone listener email episode, maybe once a month or so, if I get enough emails piled up and everything. That way I I won't be going through email at the beginning of an episode before the review of the Twilight Zone episode and all that. Uh, Let me know what you guys think of that, like an independent um, listener email episode every now and then if like the emails keep piling up. Of course, I won't do that if you guys don't email. So uh, once again, you can email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. But for now, I want to share this email from Gregory because I was pretty excited about it. For context, when I sat down to record last week's episode, I was pretty nervous since it's been a long time and I didn't know how many people had just, I didn't know how many people had just abandoned the show because if I were a listener and a podcast went through seven and a half months without any episodes, I would have unsubscribed. So it was just a big relief that and and just really nice to post the episode and then get a, get an email from a listener within five hours of it going live. Uh, that was just spectacular. And monitoring the downloads today has been super exciting because uh, today was actually the best single day for downloads for Anthology since I started the podcast back in September. So that means a lot and it's awesome. So I was super excited to get this email and I'm excited to go over it. Um, okay, so I'll just get right into it. Um, so Ge- Gregory had some feedback on, um, last week's episode, which, which was my review of And When the Sky Was Opened. And he also had some thoughts on Perchance to Dream, which was episode five of the podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and just go through the email and comment as needed. Gregory writes, that device you bemoaned in and when the sky was opened may not be as cliched then as it is now. I'll admit the wavy dissolve indicating we're about to experience one of the character's memories belongs more on SNL, uh, Wayne's World specifically, than a show about the eerie and unknown. I think it works here, though, because it lulls the audience into, into a false sense of superiority. The quaintness of it might even coax a giggle or two out of an especially jaded millennial. 
By the end of this episode, however, as Forbes bolts out of Gart's room, screaming, I don't want this to happen, followed by the skeptical Gart realizing his unhinged friend was right all along, the last we see of the now inconsolable Gart sinking back back until he's out of the frame, one creepy visualization of oblivion. I can at least attest I've utterly forgotten the kitschy dissolve from 20 minutes before, instead completely swept up in this first-rate slice of existential horror. And yeah, Gregory is uh, totally right here. It's it's funny. I think I carried some of my present-day bias into this episode, um, into into and when the sky was opened. It's a pretty small nit to pick regardless, the, the slow-dissolve effect to go into the flashback at the beginning of the episode. It's, I mean, it's, it's an, it's nitpicking at best, but I didn't really think to view it in the context of the time. It offers some good perspective on it. However, I still think that a bigger part of my issue with it was more that I was spoiled by the way that Robert Stevens utilized mirror reflections and more subtle transition effects in, uh, in his episodes, Where Is Everybody and Walking Distance. I was so taken with that visual technique in those earlier episodes that I just kind of wish that Douglas Hayes had, uh, followed suit a little and been a little more subtle with it. But um Gregory's right. I, I it's possible that it just wasn't it wasn't that big of a problem in the uh back in nineteen fifty nine when the episode aired and it wasn't as cliched as it is now. And it's funny that he mentioned Wayne's World because I actually just watched it for the first time uh first ish time. I watched it when I was a kid, but um for the first time as an adult a couple weeks ago for Obsessive Viewer. So that was that was kinda neat. Gregory continues and says, I'm also enamored with Perchance to Dream. The dream within a dream conceit works brilliantly. Plus, it's so cool Maya isn't a specific woman, but instead any woman this man finds attractive. His heart condition precludes our protagonist from getting too worked up about the opposite sex while he's awake. It didn't surprise me that the short story this episode is based on originally appeared in Playboy. When he's asleep, though, the control he exhibits in his waking world is snuffed out. His subconscious unleashes all the hot tail he did not... <laughs> I had to laugh at that part. Uh, his subconscious unleashes all the hot tail he denies himself otherwise. When he walks into the doc's office at the beginning and sees the comely receptionist, he's smitten. Uh, so when he falls asleep, her visage becomes Maya's. Just like maybe the previous night, Maya's mug was that of a barista employed at a Starbucks. Uh, his fear of sleeping guarantees his frequent patronage. And yeah, that completely changes my interpretation of that episode, to be honest. Um, that's really awesome. I didn't even consider the sexual implications of the story or the effect that attraction in everyday life would have had, uh, would have had on the character of Edward, um, just in his everyday life. I, I'll have to revisit the episode with a fresh perspective and, uh, I think I was just so caught up in the horror elements and, and the meaning behind the recurring dream story and the mystery surrounding it. Which, which, yeah, it's as a as a concept for an episode, it's it's spectacular. I was I was really uh, really interested in that the the main conceit of the episode, basically. That I was so interested in that that I just missed the meaning behind the sexual themes entirely. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to see that again and uh, with with a fresh eyes and definitely see how I, how I'm taken with it. Because I, I mean, I didn't. I don't remember if I I don't remember if I was pretty harsh on that episode or not. Maybe I was, but uh I remember it wasn't my favorite of the ones that I'd reviewed so far, but um it was still pretty pretty good and I really liked the horror elements of it. This new take on it um for me um will be interesting to see what I think about it. And Gregory closes the email with 
anyway, looking forward to the next installment. Um, so thanks again for the email, Gregory. And once again, please feel free to email me your thoughts on the podcast, the Twilight Zone sci-fi anthology series in general, and any of these bonus reviews I'm putting into the episodes now. Um, also, if you don't mind, let me know where you're emailing from when you write in. Uh, this will satisfy my curiosity and also give me a way to identify you with anonymity in case I get people with the same name, with the same first name writing in. Of course, that would just be ludicrous, but, um, uh, so please uh, include where you're from in the emails. Okay, so as I said before, today on the podcast, I'm going to be reviewing episode 12 of season one of The Twilight Zone. Uh, the episode's called What You Need, and it was aired on December 25th, 1959. Here is a spoilerific uh, plot summary for the episode. So if you, for some reason, are listening to this and don't want to be spoiled on this episode of The Twilight Zone, go and watch it and then come back and uh, listen to this. Pedat, a peddler, has the curious ability to give people exactly what they need before they need it. The old man enters a cafe where he first gives a woman a vial of cleaner. Then he gives a down-on-his-luck ex-baseball player a bus ticket to Scranton, Pennsylvania. The ball player receives a job offer in the city the tickets are for, and the ball player needs his jacket cleaned, for which the woman just happens to have the cleaner. Renard, a small-town thug, asks Pedat to give him what he needs, and the peddler gives him a pair of scissors which save Renard's life when his scarf gets caught in the elevator's doors. Renard shows up at Pedat's apartment, asking for another thing he needs, and the peddler comes up with a leaky pen that predicts a winning racehorse. Renard continues menacing Pedat for more. Pedat gives him a pair of new shoes. When a car suddenly heads directly toward Renard, he tries to run, but the new leather soles are so slippery he cannot escape on the wet pavement. He is struck and killed by the passing car. The shoes, Pedat explains to Renard's corpse, were what Pedat needed because he foresaw that Renard would eventually kill him. At the end of the episode, the peddler gives a couple a comb, which they then use to to groom themselves just before they are photographed as witnesses for a newspaper story covering the hit-and-run accident that killed Fred Renard. Okay, so a quick talent rundown for this episode, since it's basically a, a two-man story, um, at least for the most part. Uh, Steve Cochran plays Fred Renard. Uh, this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, and as far as I can tell, he had a lot of work at the time in different anthology series, but they were mostly like dramas. Uh, Actually, The Twilight Zone seems to be his only sci-fi anthology work and maybe his only genre or science fiction credit to his to his career. I, I'm not sure. I, I, it's possible I overlooked something in his credits. It's actually somewhat interesting and, and tragic because he actually died young in uh, 1965 at the age of 48 from a lung infection. Uh, he was on his yacht scouting filming locations at the time and died before they made landfall. Uh, his location of death is listed as the Pacific Ocean on IMDb, and I, I wouldn't include that here because I've never actually seen that before. I thought that was kind of interesting. And playing Pedat, the street peddler, is uh, Ernest Truix. Um, this is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. We'll see him again in Season three's Kick the Can. Uh, writer for this episode is, of course, Rod Serling, and the... Uh, Story was adapted from a short story titled What You Need by Lewis Paget. Uh, Lewis Paget is the pseudonym of Henry Cutner and C.L. Moore. Um, this is the only Twilight Zone episode um, to be adapted from something of Lewis Paget's work or even any solo work of Henry Cutner or C.L. Moore. This is their only, this is their only connection to the Twilight Zone. 
The short story, What You Need, was first published in the October 1945 issue of Astounding Science Fiction and was previously adapted for an episode of Tales of Tomorrow that I will talk about later in this episode. Director for this episode is Alvin Ganser. This is actually his first of four episodes. Next, we'll see his work is in a few weeks in the episode The Hitchhiker. Um, he also directed two episodes of Science Fiction and Theater. Okay, so here are my thoughts as a first-time viewer of this episode. The thing that I was immediately taken with was that there's no immediate opening narration. Um, there are a few seconds to kind of set the scene, and I I must say I really like when the show does this. Um, we're introduced to Renard kind of just by a visual cue of him. He's very clearly an agitated protagonist, and then and then that's when uh, Serling comes in with the narration, introducing him to us, saying that he has a chip on his shoulder the size of the national debt, which this is such a stupid joke, but my immediate thought was, I wonder how big it would be in, two, in 2016 money if you ingested for inflation. Um, hilarious, I know. Um, his introduction, though, the the protagonist of the episode being a kind of agitated person or someone who is unhappy with themselves and their life basically it reminded me just a little bit of the protagonist of walking distance um martin sloan was in an existential crisis brought on by where he was in his life whereas renard is he's he's a thug who seems to live in a constant existential crisis that's brought on as it's revealed kind of later in the episode by what he sees as bad luck or the world giving it, uh, the world having it out for him it's a pretty loose connection to make, but I think the through line is that they're both men who are unhappy with their lives, and they use their experience in the Twilight Zone to try to better their lives with uh, kind of surprising and disastrous consequences. But I will say that Martin Sloan is far and away a lot more endearing, endearing of a character in a much better episode of the Twilight Zone. The other thing that kind of struck me about... Um, Renard's introdu introduction to this uh, in this episode is that it's a long time before he really speaks. He just kind of sits beside, he kind of sits almost off off uh, off screen for most of this first scene, uh, where Pedot's going through the going through the bar and, and offering his wares to all the patrons there. Um, Fred Renard's kind of kind of sneaky and kind of sitting in the background, just kind of observing. And I thought that was an interesting choice. And it plays out pretty well because Renard is an observer in this scene, and, and it's uh, clear that the reason that he doesn't engage him, engage Padat in the in the bar, is that he wants to take from Padat on the street. As for Padat's interactions with the people in the bar, I really like this kind of look into these the lives of these these people in this bar, especially Lefty. Um, I I really like the internet interaction between Lefty and Padat. There's there's a line where Lefty. It's after it's after Padat is offering Lefty all of these things in the thing, uh, in his little chest, and the bartender. It's after the bartender has explained to Padat that Lefty is this down on his luck ex baseball player who can't throw a pitch anymore, and he's lost his basically he's lost the will to live. Is the kind of subtext of this, and one of the first things that Padat offers to him is shoelaces, and then after he. Now that I think about it, I don't know if it's after he's offered him the bus ticket or not. But um, at some point, Lefty says, let's go back to shoelaces. And uh, this is probably me reading way too deep into it. And I don't know if it's anything that um, was intentional on Serling's part. But that line, let's go back to shoelaces, kind of stuck with me because it kind of made me think, like, I wonder if he's trying to imply 
suicide that the suicide that suicide is the answer like he's going to hang himself with the shoelaces that's it's hard to say that's a little bit of a reach i don't know did anyone else um if if you had that interpretation when you saw this episode let me know so i'm so i know that i'm not alone in this um uh as for the cleaning solution that um Padak gave to the young lady in the bar. I thought the reveal of that being implemented on Lefty Lefty's jacket after he's offered the job, I thought it was kind of lame. I would have rather had it factor into something for the girl. Both things happening to Lefty makes him seem like the protagonist of the episode, since Renard is barely in the scene anyway. Um, and maybe that's the intention that that Renard is, like I said, Renard is an observer who's who wants Padat all to himself. But by focusing so much on Lefty's story in this this brief scene, which also again to play devil's advocate or to see to see the reason why uh, probably is that I mean economical storytelling. Like if they were to introduce uh, this the young woman as having her own set of problems and then the uh, cleaning solution being her uh, helping her in its own unique way, that'd burn up a lot of screen time. Um, so it makes sense to kind of reinforce the fact that the things that Pedot is peddling is is helping people uh and is exactly what people need at the time. So you get this double this double example of things helping people. Um so I so I can kind of respect that I guess. It just it just put a little bit too much of a focus on Lefty and it, it kind of threw me for a loop the first time I saw it. So Renard is is a thug and and he's pretty unhappy with his life and everything and he's willing to take from Pedot without regard. So Renard is not really a likable character, but um I will go ahead and say that he's not as unlikable as Bedeker was in Escape Clause. Um I mean that character was just insufferable. But I will also say that Renard isn't as clearly written as Bedeker was. So it's kind of a toss up. It's kind of a kind of a unique situation in which I I mean I could not stand Bedeker in Escape Clause. And here I can tolerate Renard's um storyline, his demeanor, his attitude, everything like that. I can tolerate that more, but I'm not as invested in his story as I was with Bedeker, even though I just flat out did not like that character. So one of my other big complaints or one of the not complaints. One of, one of my big issues with this episode really is that Renard is kind of a child. Um, uh, like he, like he, he sees, he sees the, um, the effect of what Padat's products can do, can yield. He sees these, he sees it through, through the cleaning solution, through the bus tickets. He sees it when he, when he, his life is saved by the scissors and when the horse, when he gets the horse, uh, the horse numbers from the leaky pen, he sees all of these. Yet every time he's given something from Padat or forcefully takes it from him, he's always, always just completely incredulous. He doesn't expect good things to come from it or he doesn't expect it to work. He's always very, I don't know, Renard's constant incredulity is just the episode's downfall for me. Um, he's proven that, that what Padat has, uh, works but he's constantly questioning it to the point that he becomes kind of a petulant child and i kind of wonder if the intention was to make him more of a bully but i wonder if the actor just chose to play it in a childish demeanor um because he kind of seems a little childish like oh well the pin the pin isn't leaking anymore what's wrong with the pin it's like well you know, it's pretty clearly set up the the rules for Padat's services. Um, you can't really just bully someone or, or force someone to 
to be your cash cow. I just kind of wish that 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 dynamic, and I mean, it is the biggest point of the episode and of the story is that Renard is filled with greed and acts like everything that everything should be given to him, basically. But it's to the point that he is just a little too disrespectful and irrational. Uh, he's too much. He's too. He's too disrespectful and irrational to really be taken seriously, and even his status as a as a thug isn't that clearly defined. But maybe that's that's just me because seeing because we don't see him doing doing anything other anything illegal. Otherwise, he's just sitting in a bar and he sees this guy and figures that he'd take advantage of of this uh, superpower, this this power that this man possesses. But we don't see anything anything outside of his interactions with Padat that shows that he's a thug. And then this is a, this is a really, uh, small issue. And, and it's a, it's something that every time I see this episode, I've, I've seen it a few times upon rewatching it for, for this episode, but it makes me wonder like, how does Renard even know where Padat lives? Like there's nothing to show that he knows that he knows him or that he knows where he lives yet he ends up in his apartment before Padat gets there. It's, it's kind of a strange thing. Maybe that's where his status as a thug is more fleshed out. And that's just something that I missed, but it's, it's just bizarre because you see, it seems like the time in the bar is the first time that, um, Renard is ever seeing Padat. I, I didn't get any, uh, indication that he knew Padat or was, was following Padat or anything like that. I just kind of, felt like that first scene with him and Padat on the street was their first interaction. And that was upon it. I felt like it was a more of an impulsive thing for him to approach Padat after seeing it work with, uh, seeing him at work with the cleaning solution and the bus tickets. So I don't know. I really like how conflicted Padat was throughout the episode. Um, he knows what's to come, but we, but we don't know what he knows. We just know that he knows something. And I just felt like I was in that episode of friends where, uh, Joey, Joey and Rachel and Phoebe are saying they don't know. We know, we know, we know, they know. Uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, Padat knows what's to come. He's seen, he's seen that Renard is going to murder him in the long run. Um, and then that's when he gives them, gives him the shoes, which I just, I just really like the mystery of that. Like, like you, we kind of, it's pretty clear, like, yes, something is going to happen. Uh, Padat knows something that Renard doesn't. But it's not until that ending where uh, Padat is talking to Renard's dead body in the street that we know the full story about it. I just really appreciated that. And I really, <laughs> something about the way that Ernest Truex delivers the line, they happen to be what I need. I just, I, I love that scene um, and that line delivery. And really, I just, I, I really liked uh, Truex's performance and i don't know if i'm if i'm pronouncing that correctly and i apologize if i'm not but um i just really liked his performance as padat he played up the mystery of the character in in the tone of his voice very well and it was in contrast to his kind of physical demeanor like the way that he carried himself conveyed a much less threatening and kind of a more feeble presence it made it uh suspenseful and intense when when you can see that he was uh that Renard would eventually become a physical threat to him. Like you, it was an easy act to sell, but then in the same vein, he's also speaking in a way that's mysterious and, and cloaked in, in this mysticism, uh, somewhat mysticism. Um, and I just really appreciated that in his performance. Let's see. And I, I also, uh, 
I enjoyed the uh, the effect of the car hitting Renard. It's kind of violent. I, I assume that the way that they did it was just they sped up the footage of the car hitting him. But I mean, you see him hit the hit the hood, hit the windshield, and hit the ground. And I mean, it's very quick and and very effective. I mean, it's a little bit hokey by today's standards, but it's it worked out pretty well. They didn't do it off screen, which I um, appreciated. They kind of went for it. The themes in this episode seem a bit universal, and I mean, they're not very subtle. It's a cautionary tale about greed and taking what you think you deserve from people who aren't willing to give it to you. Um, it's, I don't know, they they don't seem to be a reflection of the time that it was written in or anything like that. But then again, I could be missing something, some subtext completely. So overall, I think for me, the episode kind of survives on Truex's performance. Um, it's only the 12th episode of The Twilight Zone to air, and the 12th one that I've seen from beginning to end since starting this project. And, I mean, it's already the fourth time the show has utilized a uh, supernatural stranger plot device, um, someone who has an extra power that is used to, that is tried, that is a, someone else attempts to exploit or, or what have you. I'm thinking of like Mr. Denton on Doomsday, um, Death and One for the Angels. Um, there was one more. Oh, 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 uh, Escape Clause. Actual death and Escape Clause. Yeah, so so this is the fourth time we've seen this so far, and it's, I don't know, despite this kind of tropish setup and uh, the unlikable protagonist that I felt wasn't um, really fully fleshed out for my liking, uh, Truex's performance is engaging and helps elevate what really could have been a pretty, maybe a little bit above mediocre, but pretty still pretty kind of average episode for me. Um, the concept of someone with the power to see the future is really interesting to me and plays out with a nice balance, balance of mystery and suspense, despite some hiccups along the way. So overall, I enjoyed the episode, uh, for what it was. And, uh, I thought it was a, thought it was a good story. Pretty decently realized. I mean, then had some blemishes here and there, but, um, I still enjoyed it quite a bit. Okay, so I have some trivia for this episode. Um, the original story featured a machine that could foretell an individual's probable future, um, certainly replaced the science fiction element with a street peddler who could magically perform the same function. I guess in the original story, the man owns a shop where he has a machine and then gives people what they need to provide the best possible outcomes. And, uh, yeah, and in the original story, Renard, the Renard character... Which I just realized I was referring to him as the protagonist. Really, I guess Padat would be the protagonist and uh, Bernard would be the antagonist. Um, so, yeah, that makes, wow, yeah, that seems kind of stupid on my part. But, yeah, that makes a lot more sense now. I just don't know why. Well, I guess I guess since the opening narration just introduces uh, Renard, my brain automatically imagined that he would be the protagonist or the person that we follow. And he is the person that we follow. Um but he actually is the antagonist of the story and not the protagonist. That's interesting. But anyway, in the original story, uh, Renard isn't killed uh, by a car, but by falling off a subway platform um, while a train is coming into the station, which is even more grisly. <laughs> also, another piece of trivia, the final shot before the first commercial break while Serling is concluding the narration is actually played backwards. If you look carefully, you can see, you can see like the smoke from Renard's cigarette is going backwards. Also, this is an interesting piece of trivia. Um, during the scene in Renard's hotel room, he's given a newspaper and when he opens it, he opens it and spreads it on the floor to check the 
uh, horses and everything. But the front page of the newspaper is pretty visible in it, and you can see that it's the same. It's the same front page used in uh, the episode "Time Enough at Last." The headline reads "H bomb capable of total destruction." Also, this is interesting. Um, this episode was the inspiration for the Stephen King short story "I Know What You Need," which is in his uh, collection of short stories called "Night Shift." It's a, it's actually his first collection. Um, I haven't read the short story. Like I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I haven't read the short story, but I'm very interested to read it. From my understanding, it's it's a modern by by the time by the time that he wrote it, a modern retelling of it um, with a character in college um, on a in a college setting. So I'll read that and report back at some point. And I want to say that again, I'm I'm a huge Stephen King fan, but I also haven't read his book uh, Needful Things, which I would assume given the uh, premise of that story that it would have some kind of influence from this, um, from, from, from this, from this episode, from the story and everything. Uh, because that's about, if I'm not mistaken, it's about a shop owner in Castle Rock, uh, who sells things that people need that isn't really to the benefit of the people from what I, from what I understand. It's basically dealing with the devil. If I understand correctly, I don't, I don't know. I haven't read the book, but, um, I will eventually cause I plan on reading all Stephen King stuff. So that'll be, that'll be eventually. Uh, my final piece of trivia is that the character of Renard, he, he says the line, why don't you take a flying jump at the moon? And, uh, this same line is used Apparently, the same line is used in uh, two two later episodes in the series, uh, "The Chaser" and "To Serve Man." So that'll be interesting to see that see those scenes or see that line repeated um, in future episodes. And I don't know much about "The Chaser," but uh, "To Serve Man" is one that I'm really looking forward to watching. Okay, so before I get to the bonus content for this episode. Um, Here's a quick highlight from episode 159 of The Obsessive Viewer. It's a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at ObsessiveViewer.com. And it's hard to root for them to get together, too. It's it's at the point, I, at one point, I was just pretty much actively rooting against them, uh, hooking up or anything like that. But by the end, you kind of get this, this really well-drawn... Um, uh, characterization of both characters in my opinion that it just it kind of came together in a way that made me really excited to see where uh, they grow as characters you can find the obsessive viewer on itunes stitcher google play and at obsessiveviewer.com you can also find the episode used in this promo of the podcast at obsessiveviewer.com slash ov159 Okay, so I'm pretty excited for this week's um, bonus content, bonus review, because it's an episode of another sci-fi anthology series. The idea for this podcast is to go through all of the Twilight Zone and then eventually get to shows like The Outer Limits, uh, Science Fiction Theater, um, One Step Beyond, you know, other contemporaries of uh, of of the Twilight Zone, like other science fiction anthology series. And Tales of Tomorrow is another example of a show that I want to get to eventually for this podcast. And that's what this bonus review is of, because Tales of Tomorrow, uh, first of all, for context, Tales of Tomorrow was an American anthology science fiction series that was performed and broadcast live on ABC from 1951 to 1953 for a total of two seasons and 85 episodes. 
And the bonus content for this episode is going to cover episode 19 of the first season of Tales of Tomorrow, which is What You Need. Um, it aired February 8th, 1952, and it is based on the same uh, source material that was the basis for the Twilight Zone episode I just reviewed. So, first of all, this this entire episode was on YouTube, and I actually watched it with my Chromecast, so I was able to watch it on TV. And many of these episodes of Tales of Tomorrow are public domain and can be found at archive.org. Okay, so this episode is uh, different than Serling's interpretation of it, but the plot summary is an unscrupulous freelance writer extorts the elderly owner of a CD secondhand shop who is, pres- uh, who is prescient about the future. The episode starred William Redfield as Tom Carmichael, the aforementioned writer, and uh, Edgar Stelly. <laughs> it's uh, it's Edgar Stelly. Edgar Stelly as Peter Talley, the uh, the shop the shop owner. Uh, he also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond in 1960, and also one episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, actually, season one's long live Walter Jameson, so I'll be talking about him fairly soon. So I have some thoughts on this episode, um, just some things that I jotted down. Uh, <laughs> this is more on the format of the live anthology series format and uh, and how Tales of Tomorrow was was broadcast. But um, it opens <laughs> the the sh- the show opens and uh, in each ad break is interrupted with an ad for their sponsor. That's just the the host introducing like pretty much peddling the 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 wares of the sponsor and selling it to the audience and i mean <laughs> on one hand it was really interesting to see this cuz i i mean i've i've never really seen this thing outside of a outside of an infomercial cuz i'm not too familiar with with television of this era that's one of the reasons why i started this podcast is to uh, better educate myself in in historical television basically and the other side of it was that my God, you just heard a pro- a promo for obsess for the obsessive viewer, which is the my main podcast that I do full. I almost said full time, but it's it's the podcast that I started and what caused me to start this basically. And <laughs> just my immediate thought with with seeing these ads were were that it makes me so excited to eventually get to the point where I'm covering Tales of Tomorrow in full because I'm gonna have so much fun with that. <laughs> you have no idea. So as for the actual episode and the actual interpretation of the story, it's immediately shown that Mr. Carmichael, the uh, all protagonist, antagonist, uh, what have you, uh, the freelance writer, he's, he's irritable just like, just like Renard is. It's played, it's played pretty well. It's not played as, as, uh, confrontational as, as, uh, Renard was played by, uh, Steve Cochran. It's like the, the actor in Tales of Tomorrow, played it with more curiosity than anything um he's a writer who's looking for a big scoop or something that he can uncover like a scandal he can uncover and he thinks that the shop owner is basically ripping off these people for large sums of money and he's trying to get a scoop so that he can you know expose them so it's an interesting dynamic from from the from the outset and uh, his curiosity is ultimately his downfall in this episode and it's just an interesting tr- progression to see the curiosity change into greed and and to change in into uh into what ultimately gets him killed similarities to the twilight zone uh, the shop owner gives carmichael scissors he gets a scarf caught in something in this interpretation or in this in this version of the story he gets the scarf caught in a printing press and uh 
like I understand it's a it's a live broadcast and it's a live performance and everything, but the blocking is still just kind of awkward in that scene. So it kind of took me out of it a little bit. But I really like the setup. I actually would go so far as to say that I like the setup of the scarf getting caught in a printing press. I, I liked it even a little bit more than the setup in the Twilight Zone with uh, just just because I think that death by printing press would be more interesting to me than by elevator doors. It's I don't know. It just seemed a little more not more climactic because actually the elevators are more thrilling and suspenseful. But just as soon as I think the throughout the scene when he's talking to the editor of the magazine that he's trying to get published in to get this to get this article published and once he writes it throughout the entire scene the printing press is running and running and running and it's a nice tense audio cue for the audience to know like okay this is something's going to happen with this so i i enjoyed that in concept i enjoyed that more than the concept of the elevator in the twilight zone although the twilight zone um, sequence was depicted better. Act two of this story actually went into the mechanics of the fortune telling and the machine that the fortune teller used. And I gotta admit, I, I actually like that more than the mysticism of the Twilight Zone's version. It's a more, it's a more grounded science fiction story. It's more, um, you get more answers, but it's also, it's also depicted as kind of the shop owner's curse. And it's, it's really interesting. The one thing that I did want to point out also, is uh, there's a line of dialogue when, um, when when Peter is explaining to Carmichael that uh, how the machine works and everything. He'd given a gun to a customer, and the the customer had paid five thousand dollars for the gun. And the reason that he had was that the reason that he gave him the gun was that in two years that customer will develop a serum to combat polio. And uh, that made me think, like, wait, when was the polio vaccine developed? And uh, the first polio vaccine, according to the Internet, was developed by Jonas Salk and came into use in 1955. So the show was like one year off on that because this aired in 1952. So this so then the then the uh, episode shows us Peter seeing his death, the shop owner seeing his death. Um, it actually goes to, so far as to depict the death um, on screen for us. And this is kind of where the episode lost me. Um, Twilight Zone has the edge on on this one, on this entire interpretation of it as well in, in this scene. Like I said, I like that we see the mechanics of his fortune telling, but to actually show us that he sees his death just kills any suspense for me in the rest of the episode. Like, you know his motivation and maybe this is my bias having seen the Twilight Zone episode beforehand, but you know his you know his motivation and you know that he has to do something to stop the writer from from killing him. And that just I don't know, it just kinda kills it for me. Like the writer in the vision that Peter sees, like the culprit is obscured, but obviously it's the writer. Obviously it's Carmichael. So I don't know. It just it just killed any suspense for me. Both Peter and Carmichael have significant others to play off of. I like that dynamic quite a bit because um the alternative is that they're kind of going up against each other and they don't have anyone to really play off of. And by having, by having significant others to, to bounce off their dialogue from independent of it brought, brought a little bit more, uh, dimension to their characters. I think, uh, just a little bit overall, uh, the story is, the story plays out kind of the same way. Uh, the writer gets killed from uh, slippery shoes. Um, in Tales of Tomorrow's depiction of it, it's off screen, which is understandable. It's a live anthology show. But there's kind of a, 
a monologue at the end between Peter and his wife, and it, it kind of spells out the themes of the episode. It's the conflict and consequences of playing God, and it ends with Peter destroying the machine. And in the end, it's a morality tale. And I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the episode, and I enjoyed it as an introduction to Tales of Tomorrow. But overall, I, I think the Twilight Zone wins here, um, for sure. And I mean, that's a little... I mean, that's, that's kind of apples and oranges, really, when you think about it. But um, the same same source material, same story, and The Twilight Zone wins. But I respect Tales of Tomorrow's version of it as well for uh, a few unique changes and a few unique uh, – well, not really changes because I don't know what the source material is. But um, a few unique segments of it, I guess, would be the word I'd use. So, yeah, like I said, that's on, that's on YouTube and uh, – I failed at saying this in pretty much every other episode, but um, The Twilight Zone is available on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, all that stuff. Season 4 is not available on Netflix, but I think Season 4 is available on Hulu. I'm not 100% sure, but apparently Season 4 is horrible anyway, so we'll get to that eventually. So yeah, that about does it for this uh, this week's episode of Anthology. Uh, next week, I'll be reviewing episode 13 of The Twilight Zone, season one, The Four of Us Are Dying, and I'll have another bonus review for you there. I'm, I'm thinking that it'll be a review of 1967, or I'm sorry, 1976's Logan's Run, but we'll see. I, it'll probably be that because the writer of The Four of Us Are Dying was the, the co-author of the book that Logan's Run was based off of, and I've never seen Logan's Run and I would like to. So this is the perfect excuse. Once again, I want to thank everyone for listening and uh, for supporting the podcast. Like I said, today, which is the Monday that I released episode six of the podcast, today was the best day for downloads, best single day for downloads in Anthology's history. And uh, I'm really pleased about that. And I'm really excited to be bringing you guys new content and uh, more consistently. So yeah, that about does it. And thanks for listening, guys. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find past episodes of the show at AnthologyPod.com. And please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps the show out more than you might think. Of course, I crave feedback or conversation of any kind from the audience, so please email your thoughts and feelings about the show to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Or you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer and make sure you like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod. Of course, you can also leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Tiny and Mike. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can find all of that at obsessiveviewer.com. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer. And check out obsessivebooknerd.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.
This summer, dive into the many cools of San Antonio. Because as soon as the temperature rises, so do the many cool things to do. Come keep cool with amazing pools and the hottest nights at the coolest spots in Texas. Go to visitsanantonio.com slash summer.